to the Drabblecast, episode 282. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Greetings from Jackson Hole, Wyoming, or as the locals call it, Well, reaping their long saw candy, watch them bears, you get you. Over the weekend, I loaded my bike up with camping equipment and trekked up into the Grand Tetons, camped by a frozen lake, then went up into Yellowstone National Park. Camping tip. If you get lost in the woods, a compass can help you get more lost north. I've seen bears, moose, wolves, and almost zero people, partly because I'm not on the roads much, but mostly because it's May and that's the off-season for the park. It's still open, there are just a lot less assholes running around. There's this one buffalo who's kind of being a dick, but other than that, this is the time of year to go, folks. And this week's show is for all you ramblers, rovers, and journeymen out there. I'm looking at you, homeless people. Let's start things off with a Drabble. Drabble. This week's Drabble comes to us from forum member Derek Manuel, and it's called, And If You Gaze Into the Abyss. Derek lives in Louisiana with a dog, no cats, and the curse of knowing how it will all end, but being powerless to do anything about it. Occasionally attempting to write fiction provides a welcome respite from his job, where he's forced to use words in ways that are completely alien to the general understood meanings. He's on Twitter at DMTheWriter, where he occasionally snarks about TV shows and other topics of mild to moderate interest. I started in the Mississippi Delta, which is not actually a delta, but an alluvial plain. From where I was in Yazoo County, I had to go somewhere else. Unlike LaSalle, I was neither a famous explorer nor French. I was just a guy who collected Jack Chick comics and lay awake at night thinking about the Munchausen trilemma. I was ill-equipped to hunt snarks or battle a jabberwock. When I reached the climax of the story, I hardly even knew how I'd gotten there. I didn't even have a near-death experience. I just lost an entire day on Wikipedia. And our feature story this week is Leon the Wayfarer by Jack Vance. Jack Vance is one of the greats of fantasy and science fiction. In 1997, he was honored as a Grand Master by the Science Fiction Writers of America, and in 2001 was inducted into the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. He's the author of the World Fantasy Award-winning Lioness series, and the Hugo and Nebula Award-winning The Last Castle. This story is the fourth story from Vance's 1950 collection of fantasy short stories, The Dying Earth, which was phenomenally popular and later became the first book in Vance's The Dying Earth series. If you're into fantasy fiction and you haven't read these, you're doing yourself a disservice. Vance's world building is unique and highly engaging. His prose is colorful. His characters are, well, you'll see. Without further ado, we bring you Leon the Wayfarer by Jack Vance. Through the dim forest came Leon the Wayfarer, passing along the shadowed glades with a prancing, light-footed gait. He whistled, he caroled, he was plainly in high spirits. 
Around his finger he twirled a bit of wrought bronze, a circlet graved with angular crabbed characters, now stained black. By excellent chance he had found it, banded around the root of an ancient yew. Hacking it free, he had seen the characters on the inner surface, rude, forceful symbols, doubtless the cast of a powerful antique rune. Best take it to a magician and have it tested for sorcery. Leon made a wry mouth. There were objections to the course. Sometimes it seemed as if all living creatures conspired to exasperate him. Only this morning, the spice merchant, what a tumult he had made, dying. How carelessly he had spewed blood on Leon's cock-combed sandals. Still, thought Leon, every unpleasantness carried with it compensation. While digging the grave, he had found the bronze ring. And Leon's spirit soared. He laughed in pure joy. He bounded. He leapt. His green cape flapped behind him. The red feather in his cap winked and blinked. But still, Leon slowed his step. He was no whit closer to the mystery of the magic, if magic the ring possessed. Experiment. That was the word. He stopped where the ruby sunlight slanted down with hindrance from the high foliage, examined the ring, traced the glyphs with his fingernail. He peered through. A faint film? A flicker? He held it at arm's length. It was clearly a coronet. He whipped off his cap, set the band on his brow, rolled his great golden eyes, preened himself. Odd. It slipped down on his ears. It tipped across his eyes. Darkness. Frantically, Leon clawed it off. A bronze ring, a hand's breadth in diameter. Queer. He tried again. It slipped down over his head, his shoulders. His head was in the darkness of a strange, separate space. Looking down, he saw the level of the outside light dropping as he dropped the ring. Slowly down. Now it was around his ankles, and in sudden panic, Leon snatched the ring up over his body, emerged blinking into the maroon light of the forest. He saw a blue-white, green-white flicker against the foliage. It was a twuck man, mounted on a dragonfly, and light glinted from the dragonfly's wings. Leon called sharply, Here, sir! Here, sir! The Twook man perched his mount on a twig. Well, Leon, what do you wish? Watch now and remember what you see. Leon pulled the ring over his head, dropped it to his feet, lifted it back. He looked up at the Twook man, who was chewing on a leaf. And what did you see? I saw Leon vanish from mortal sight, except for the red curled toes of his sandals. All else was as air. Ha! cried Leon. Think of it. Have you ever seen the like? The Twook man asked carelessly. Do you have salt? I would have salt. Leon cut his exultation short, eyed the Twook man closely. What news do you bring me? Three herbs killed Florahin, the dream builder, and burst all his bubbles. The air above the manse was colored for many minutes with the flitting fragments. A gram. Lord Kandive the Golden has built a barge of carven mowood, ten lengths high, and it floats on the river Squam for the regatta, full of treasure. Two grams, 
A golden witch named Lith has come to live on Thamber Meadow. She is quiet and very beautiful. Three grams. Enough, said the twook man, and leaned forward to watch while Leon weighed out the salt in a tiny balance. He packed it in small panniers hanging on each side of the ribbed thorax, then twitched the insect into the air and flicked off through the forest vaults. Once more, Leon tried the bronze ring, and this time brought it entirely past his feet, stepped out of it, and brought the ring up into the darkness beside him. What a wonderful sanctuary! A hole whose opening could be hidden inside a hole itself! Down with the ring to his feet, step through, bring it up his slender frame and over his shoulders, and out into the forest with a small bronze ring in hand. Oh, and off to Thamber Meadow to see the beautiful Golden Witch. Her hut was a simple affair of woven reeds, a low dome with two round windows and a low door. He saw Lith at the pond, bare-legged amongst the water shoots, catching frogs for her supper. A white kirtle was gathered up tight around her thighs. Stock still, she stood, and the dark water rippled rings away from her slender knees. She was more beautiful than Leon could have imagined, as if one of Florahen's wasted bubbles had burst here on the water. Her skin was pale cream stirred gold, her hair a denser, wetter gold. Her eyes were like Leon's own, great golden orbs, and hers were wide apart, tilted slightly. Leon strode forward and planted himself on the bank. She looked up, startled, her ripe mouth half open. Behold, Golden Witch, here is Leon. He has come to welcome you to Thamber, and he offers you his friendship, his love. Lith bent, scooped a handful of slime from the bank, and flung it into his face. Shouting the most violent curses, Leon wiped his eyes free, but the door to the hut had slammed shut. Leon strode to the door and pounded on it with his fist. Open and show your witch's face, or I burn the hut. The door opened, and the girl looked forth, smiling. What now? Leon entered the hut and lunged for the girl, but twenty thin shafts darted out, twenty points pricking his chest. He halted, eyebrows raised, mouth twitching. Down, steel, said Lith. The blade snapped from view. So easily could I seek your vitality, said Lith, had I willed. Leon frowned and rubbed his chin, as if pondering. You understand, he said earnestly, what a witless thing you do. Leon is feared by those who fear fear, loved by those who love love, and you— His eyes swam the golden glory of her body. You are as ripe as a, a sweet fruit. You are eager. You glisten and tremble with love. You please, Leon, and he will spend much warmness on you. No, no, said Lith with a slow smile. You are too hasty. Leon looked at her in surprise. Indeed? I am Lith, said she. I am what you say I am, a ferment. I burn, I seethe, yet I may have no lover but him who has served me. He must be brave, swift, cunning. I am he, said Leon. He chewed his lip. It is not... Usually thus, I detect this indecision. He took a step forward. Come, let us... She backed away. 
No, no, you forget. How have you served me? How have you gained the right to my love? Absurdity, stormed Leon. Look at me. Note my perfect grace, the beauty of my form and feature, my great eyes, as golden as your own, my manifest will and power. It is you who should serve me. That is how I will have it. He sank upon a low divan. Woman, give me wine. She shook her head. In my small domed hut I cannot be forced, perhaps outside on Thamber Meadow, but in here, among my blue and red tassels, with twenty blades of steel at my call, you must obey me. So choose, either arise and go, never to return, or else agree to serve me on one small mission, and then have me and all my ardor. Leon sat straight and stiff an odd creature, the golden witch. But indeed, she was worth some exertion, and he would make her pay for her impudence. Very well, then, he said blandly. I will serve you. What do you wish? Jewels? I can suffocate you in pearls, blind you with diamonds. I have two emeralds the size of your fist, and they are green oceans, where the gaze is trapped and wanders forever among vertical green prisms. Now, no jewels. An enemy, perhaps. Ah, so simple. Leon will kill you ten men. Two steps forward, thrust. Thus he lunged, and souls go thrilling up like bubbles in a beaker of mead. No, I want no killing. He sat back, frowning. What then? She stepped to the back of the room and pulled at a drape. It swung aside, displaying a golden tapestry. The scene was a valley bounded by two steep mountains, a broad valley where a placid river ran past a quiet village, and so into a grove of trees. Golden was the river, golden the mountains, golden the trees, gold so various, so rich, so subtle, that the effect was like a many-colored landscape. But the tapestry had been rudely hacked in half. Leon was entranced, Exquisite, exquisite, Lith said. It is the magic valley of Ariventa, so depicted. The other half has been stolen from me, and its recovery is the service I wish of you. Where is the other half? demanded Leon. Who is the dastard? Now she watched him closely. Have you ever heard of Chun, Chun the Unavoidable? Leon considered. No. He stole the half to my tapestry and hung it in a marble hall, and this hall is in the ruins to the north of Cain, <laughs> muttered Leon. The hall is by the place of whispers and is marked by a leaning column with a black medallion of a phoenix and a two-headed lizard. I go, said Leon. He rose. One day to Cain, one day to steal, one day to return. Three days. Lith followed him to the door. "'Beware of Chun the Unavoidable,' she whispered. And Leon strode away whistling, the red feather bobbing in his green cap. Lith watched him, then turned and slowly approached the golden tapestry. "'Golden Ariventa,' she whispered. "'My heart cries and hurts with longing for you.'"
The Derna is a swifter, thinner river than the Squam, its bosomy sister to the south. And where the Squam wallows through a broad dale, purple with horse blossom, pocked white and gray with crumpling castles, the Derna has sheared a steep canyon overhung by forested bluffs. An ancient flint road long ago followed the course of the Derna, but now the exaggeration of the meandering has cut into the pavement, so that Leon, treading the road to Cain, was occasionally forced to leave the road and make a detour through banks of thorn and the two grass which whistled in the breeze. The red sun, drifting across the universe like an old man creeping to his deathbed, hung low to the horizon when Leon breasted Porphyron's scar, looked across white-walled Cain and the blue bale of Sanreal beyond. Directly below was the marketplace, a medley of stalls selling fruits, slabs of pale meat, mollusks from the slime banks, dull flagons of wine. And the quiet people of Cain moved among the stalls, buying their sustenance, carrying it loosely to their stone chambers. Beyond the marketplace rose a bank of ruined columns like broken teeth, legs to the arena built two hundred feet from the ground by Mad King Shin. Beyond, in a grove of bay trees, a glossy dome of the palace was visible, where Candive the Golden ruled Cain and as much of Ascolace as one could see from a vantage on the Porphyron Scar. The Derna, no longer a flow of clear water, poured through a network of dank canals and subterranean tubes, and finally seeped past rotting wharves into the Bay of Sanreal. A bed for the night, thought Leon, then to his business in the morning. He leapt down the zigzag steps, back forth, back forth, and came out into the marketplace, and now he put on a grave demeanor. Leon the wayfarer was not unknown in Cain, and many were ill-minded enough to work him harm. He moved sedately in the shade of the Pannon Wall, turned through a narrow cobbled street bordered by old wooden houses glowing the rich brown of old stump water in the rays of the setting sun, and so came to a small square and the high stone face of the magician's inn. The host, a small fat man, sad of eye, with a small fat nose the identical shape of his body, was scraping ashes from the hearth. He straightened his back and hurried behind the counter to his little alcove. Leon said, A chamber, well aired and a supper of mushrooms, wine and oysters. The innkeeper bowed humbly. Indeed, sir. How will you pay? Leon flung down a leather sack taken this very morning. The innkeeper raised his eyebrows in pleasure at the fragrance. The ground buds of the space bush brought from a far land said Leon. Excellent. Your chamber, sir, and your supper at once. As Leon ate, several other guests of the house appeared and sat before the fire with wine, and the talk grew large and dwelt on wizards of the past and the great days of magic. Great Fandal knew a lore now forgot, said one old man with hair dyed orange. 
He tied white and black strings to the legs of sparrows and sent them veering to his direction, and where they wove their magic woof, great trees appeared, laden with flowers, fruits, gnats, or bulbs of rare liqueurs. It is said that thus he wove great Da Forest on the shores of Sun Ra Water. Ha! said a dour man in a garment of dark blue, brown and black. This I can do. He brought forth a bit of string, flicked it, whirled it, spoke a quiet word, and the vitality of the pattern fused the string into a tongue of red and yellow fire, which danced, curled, darted back and forth along the table, till the dour man killed it with a gesture. And this I can do, said a hooded figure in a black cape sprinkled with silver circles. He brought forth a small tray, laid it on the table, and sprinkled therein a pinch of ashes from the hearth. He brought forth a whistle and blew a clear tone, and up from the tray came glittering motes, flashing the prismatic colors red, blue, green, yellow. They floated up a foot and burst in coruscations of brilliant colors, each a beautiful star-shaped pattern, and each burst sounded a tiny repetition of the original tone, the clearest, purest sound in the world. The motes became fewer, the magician blew a different tone, and again the motes floated up to burst in glorious ornamental spangles. Another time, another swarm of motes. At last the magician replaced his whistle, wiped off the tray, tucked it inside his cloak, and lapsed back to silence. Now the other wizard surged forward, and soon the air above the table swarmed with visions, quivered with spells. One showed the group nine new colors of ineffable charm and radiance. Another caused a mouth to form on the landlord's forehead and revile the crowd, much to the landlord's discomfiture, since it was his own voice. Another displayed a green glass bottle from which the face of a demon peered and grimaced. Another, a ball of pure crystal, which rolled back and forward to the command of the sorcerer who owned it, and who claimed it to be an earring of the fabled Master San Caferin. Leon had attentively watched all, crowing in delight at the bottled imp, and trying to cozen the obedient crystal from its owner without success. And Leon became pettish, complaining that the world was full of rock-hearted men. But the sorcerer with the crystal earring remained indifferent, and even when Leon spread out twelve packets of rare spice, he refused to part with his toy. Leon pleaded, I wish only to please the witch Lith. Please, please her with spice, then, Leon said ingeniously. Indeed, she has but one wish, a bit of tapestry, which I must steal from Chun the Unavoidable. And he looked from face to suddenly silent face. <laughs> what causes such immediate sobriety? Ho, landlord, more wine. The sorcerer with the earring said, If the floor swam ankle-deep with wine, the rich red wine of Tanvilakat, the leaden prince of that name would still ride the air. <laughs> Laughed Leon. Let only a taste of that wine pass your lips, and the fumes would erase all memory. See his eyes, came a whisper. 
great and golden, and quick to see, spoke Leon, and these legs, quick to run, fleet as starlight on the waves, and this arm, quick to stab with steel, and my magic, which will set me to a refuge that is out of all cognizance. He gulped wine from a beaker. Now, behold, this is magic from antique days. He set the bronze band over his head, stepped through, brought it up inside the darkness. When he deemed that sufficient time had elapsed, he stepped through once more. The fire glowed, the landlord stood in his alcove, Leon's wine was at hand, but of the assembled magicians there was no trace. Leon looked about in puzzlement, and where are my wizardly friends? The landlord turned his head. They took to their chambers. The name you spoke weighed on their souls. And Leon drank his wine in frowning silence. Next morning he left the inn and picked a roundabout way to the old town, a gray wilderness of tumbled pillars, weathered blocks of sandstone, slumped pediments with crumbled inscriptions, flagged terraces overgrown with rusty moss. Lizards, snakes, insects crawled the ruins. No other life did he see. Threading away through the rubble, he almost stumbled on a corpse, the body of a youth, one who stared at the sky with empty eye sockets. Leon felt a presence. He leapt back, rapier half-bared. A stooped old man stood watching him. He spoke in a feeble, quavering voice. And what will you have in Old Town? I seek the place of whispers. Perhaps you will direct me. The old man made a croaking sound at the back of his throat. <laughs> another? Another? When will it cease? He motioned to the corpse. This one came yesterday, seeking the place of whispers. He would steal from Chun the unavoidable. See him now? He turned away. Come with me. He disappeared over a tumble of rock. Leon followed. The old man stood by another corpse with eye sockets bereft and bloody. This one came four days ago, and he met Chun the Unavoidable. And over there behind the arch is still a great warrior in Elosian armor. And there, and there, he pointed, pointed. And there, and there, like crushed flies. He turned his watery blue gaze back to Leon. Return, young man, return, lest your body lie here in its green cloak to rot on the flagstones. Leon drew his rapier and flourished it. <laughs> I am Leon the Wayfarer. Let them who offend me have fear. And where is the place of whispers? If you must know said the old man. It is beyond that broken obelisk, but you go to your peril. 
Uh, I am Leon the Wayfarer. Peril goes with me. The old man stood like a piece of weathered statuary as Leon strode off. And Leon asked himself, Suppose this old man were an agent of Chun, and at this minute were on his way to harm him. Best to take all precautions. He leapt up on a high entablature and ran crouching back to where he had left the ancient. Here he came, muttering to himself, leaning on his staff. Leon dropped a block of granite as large as his head. A thud, a croak, a gasp. And Leon went on his way. He strode past the broken obelisk into a wide court, the place of whispers. Directly opposite was a long, wide hall, marked by a leaning column with a big black medallion, the sign of a phoenix and a two-headed lizard. Leon merged himself with the shadow of a wall and stood watching like a wolf, alert for any flicker of motion. All was quiet. The sunlight invested the ruins with dreary splendor. To all sides, as far as the eye could reach, was broken stone, a wasteland leached by a thousand rains. Until now, the sense of man had departed, and the stone was one with the natural earth. The sun moved across the dark blue sky. Leon presently stole from his vantage point and circled the hall. No sight nor sign did he see. He approached the building from the rear and pressed his ear to the stone. It was dead without vibration. Around the side, watching up, down, to all sides, a breach in the wall. Leon peered inside. At the back, hung half a golden tapestry. Otherwise, the hall was empty. Leon looked up, down, this side, that. There was nothing in sight. He continued around the hall. He came to another broken place. He looked within. To the rear hung the golden tapestry. Nothing else to right or left, no sight or sound. Leon continued to the front of the hall and sought into the eaves, dead as dust. He had a clear view of the room, bare, barren except for the bit of golden tapestry. Leon entered, striding with long, soft steps. He halted in the middle of the floor. Light came to him from all sides except the rear wall. There was a dozen openings from which to flee, and no sound except the dull thudding of his heart. He took two steps forward. The tapestry was almost at his fingertips. He stepped forward and swiftly jerked the tapestry down from the wall, and behind was Chun the Unavoidable. Leon screamed. He turned on paralyzed legs, and they were leaden, like legs in a dream which refused to run. Chun dropped out of the wall and advanced. Over his shiny black back, he wore a robe of eyeballs threaded on silk. 
Leon was running, fleetly now. He sprang, he soared. The tips of his toes scarcely touched the ground. Out of the hall, across the square, into the wilderness of broken statues and fallen columns. And behind came Chun, running like a dog. Leon sped along the crest of a wall and sprang a great gap to a shattered fountain. Behind came Chun. Leon darted up a narrow alley, climbed over a pile of refuse, over a roof, down into a court. Behind came Chun. Leon sped down a wide avenue lined with a few stunted old cypress trees, and he heard Chun close at his heels. He turned into an archway, pulled his bronze ring over his head, down to his feet. He stepped through, brought the ring up inside the darkness. Sanctuary. He was alone in a dark magic space, vanished from earthly gaze and knowledge. Brooding silence, dead space. He felt a stir behind him, a breath of air. At his elbow, a voice said, I am Chun, the unavoidable. Lith sat on her couch near the candles, weaving a cap from frog skins. The door to her hut was barred, the windows shuttered. Outside, Thamber Meadow dwelled in darkness. A scrape at her door, a creak as the lock was tested. Lith became rigid and stared at the door. A voice said, Tonight, O oh Lith, tonight, it is two long, bright threads for you. Two, because the eyes were so great, so large, so golden. Lith sat quiet. She waited an hour, then creeping to the door, she listened. The sense of presence was absent. A frog croaked nearby. She eased the door ajar, found the threads, and closed the door. She ran to her golden tapestry and fitted the threads into the raveled warp. And she stared at the golden valley, sick with longing for Ariventa. And tears blurred out the peaceful river, the quiet golden forest. The cloth slowly grows wider, she said. One day it will be done, and I will come home. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. Now I totally want a coat of eyeballs, and to ride a dragonfly, and to turn invisible. Man, now I'm pettish too. Woman, give me wine. Despite being obviously embedded deep in the fantasy genre, there are none of your typical ingredients here. Leon isn't a hero. He's a sociopath who drops boulders on old geezers. Chun the Unavoidable isn't a villain. He's just another guy gathering eyeballs to get laid. And Lith, well, she's hardly a damsel in distress, is she? She just wants to return to the home she loves but at what cost to others. Love is blind, I guess, whether you've still got eyeballs or not. Hope you enjoyed this week's story. 
If you did, make a donation to the Drabblecast. Help put wind in our sails to travel that extra mile. It's easy. Go to Drabblecast.org and click on either the one-time donation button, the $5 a month automatic subscription button, or the $10 a month automatic subscription button, which gets you access to the new Drabblecast premium feed, with all sorts of cool bonus content each month for your ears and eyes only. This week, for example, a sequel to Frank Key's story last week, Papstis Tack, is coming out in the B-Sides bonus feed, appropriately named The Return of Papstis Tack. It's glorious. All right, moving on to our 100-character story winner this week, Lydia, with this one here. Four times they took him, every time an anal probe. Now he was prepared. Every night he ate three fortune cookies, whole. Think you can write a good story with only 100 characters, not counting spaces? Give it a shot. Post it in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org. We might pick yours to be on the show next week. Follow us on Twitter at The Drabblecast. All right, folks, that's our show. Remember, the Drabblecast is produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means you can't change or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes, share us with a friend, spread the weird. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, John Blazik. John's a music enthusiast and tabletop gamer, currently residing in Hawaii with his wife, Z, and six-month-old daughter, Guinevere Danger Blazik. He can usually be found locked in a climate-controlled room, drawing and listening to speed metal with his daughter. Check him out at www.artofjohnblaze.com. Our program this week was brought to you by Nikki Drayden, Managing Editor, Submissions Editor, Nathan Lee, our Art Director, Bo Kyer, with additional help from Tom Baker, David Steffen, and David Carvin. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you, it is you who should serve me. That is how I will have it. Laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass. Words were all slurred when spoke. Yes, words were all slurred when spoke. In the dark corner table sits Lance Fernandez, the boss, and as women surround him like clothing, all tussled and ready to toss, all tussled and ready to toss.